Good morning, church. When we sing, when we sing the gospel, what happens is God meets with his people. Listening to you sing as one of your pastors at the front of our auditorium as we lead each other is the privilege of my life. It's not meaningless. It means something deep. What you have just done is caused war against the enemy and his forces. He doesn't win. Let the Lord Jesus be praised. Oh, man, did I need that. My name's Corey. I am one of the pastors here and apparently a gigantic crybaby. <laughs> and and I, get to, I get to dig into God's word with you today. We're in this fantastic study on this amazing book of Philippians. And while there's so much that can be said about it, we're going to dive into uh, only four verses today. And for those of you who are like, how are you going to fill seven hours with four verses? I can do it. It's real easy for me. It's, it's, getting, it's getting me to quiet up. That's the trick, really. But we're going to dive into this, this uh, amazing little passage that, that Paul writes to the people in Philippi. And the title of the message today is this, Markers of a Gospel-Centered Community. Now, you've probably heard us use that phraseology over the last number of months. Pastor Neil and Pastor Kevin and I, we use this phrase a lot. It's it's that we want to be a church, a people, a family that is committed to the message of the gospel that saves. Because what else is there? Like legitimately nothing else matters. If, if we came to church and we don't hear the gospel, what's the point? If we come to church and we don't, and we're not exposed to the realities of the gospel, if we're not living out the life of the gospel as a community, what are we doing here? So much of the book of Philippians has to do with a couple major themes. The, the theme of joy in all circumstances, or the, the theme of suffering, or the themes of having the mind of Christ, which is the title, uh, the, kind of the subtitle of our sermon series. But what the, the main issue of the book of Philippians is, is what it looks like to live as a kingdom citizen. What does it look like to be a Christian in the world that is actually very far away from what being a kingdom citizen looks like? How do we actually do that? And so this is what the markers are. We're going we're gonna to walk through them together. But I've got a question, and I'm trying to set us up this way. Have you ever met somebody who's a little bit like a chameleon? Kind of like that kind of think in your mind for a little bit. What do chameleons do? Depending on their environment, they will look a certain way, Right? If there's something, if there's one situation or a different situation, they'll kind of be that way depending on what situation they would find themselves in. And so what Paul is going to lay out for us here is we actually cannot be kingdom citizens and kind of live between two worlds. It's impossible. To be a kingdom citizen, to be a gospel-centered community, what it means for us is that we're the same. That we hold to a, a higher allegiance. We hold to a king and his kingdom that we just sung about together. And so the big idea today from Philippians 1, this is the passage we're going to be in, so get your Bibles out or your digital format of your Bible. And the big idea is this, 
To live as a gospel-centered citizen, we must maintain three gospel S's. And you're going to see these S's right away as we go through the text. I'm, I'm not clever enough to come up with my own ideas. I just have to take what the Bible says and just kind of, oh, this is what it says. Let's go with that. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to read God's word together as we honor what God has given us to reveal himself to us. This is the word of the Lord. And Paul writes, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or I will only hear about you in my absence, I know that you will stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that you'll be saved by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. All right. So I've, I've given away the end at the start. So if you've got your notes, you can kind of be like, oh, Pastor Corey, we can leave now. No, you can't leave yet. As we get into this, let's start with the first one. Gospel S number one, stand firm together. Now, Paul says that we are to stand firm as one man. So we're going we're to walk through the passage a little bit together, but it's important that we understand this needs to happen. You actually can't stand firm without one another, and we're going to talk about that. So here's what it is in verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves, this is a really important word, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm as one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. This phraseology, whatever happens, is supposed to lead us back to the previous phrases in Philippians chapter 1, which Pastor Neil led us in last week. What Paul is saying is whether I remain in the body here to preach the gospel on earth or die and go to be with Jesus, whatever happens, guys, writing to these people who he loves in this church that he birthed, conduct yourselves. Now, this conduct yourself word is really important. The literal translation is this. Live as citizens. So whatever happens to Paul, live as citizens in a manner worthy it's actually worthily. It's, it's, it's a way that we walk in step with God, and we're supposed to live as citizens of Jesus's kingdom, not our own. Not our, not our little kingdoms that we like to set up and our, our little fake thrones that we like to put up in front of God's throne. We're supposed to conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of being called because of the gospel of Jesus. So we are to live as citizens. But then he continues, he says, so, so then whether I can come to you because I'm Paul, I'm in prison and I'm preaching the gospel to these guards and the people that are in prison with me, or even if I just hear about you, you got to live this way. You have to live this way. It's kind of like this. Uh, anybody ever have like a retail job that you're like, this isn't really not my favorite thing. Anybody have one of those? It's okay to put your hands up. Or, uh, or work in a fast food restaurant before anybody? Hands up. Just me? Okay, there, there we go, there we go. There's this phrase that your bosses, your supervisors, your managers used to use. If you ever got caught doing this, they'd say, hey, if you've got time to lean, you've got time to? Right. 
It's like the most, the most belittling thing in the world. Like I'm slaving away over this hot stove. You're just taking a break. No, if, you, if, you, if you've got time to lean, you've got time to clean. Now, of, of course, Paul is not trying to suggest to these people that they're doing anything wrong necessarily. He's, he's actually calling them out of, even if I don't have literal oversight over you, if I'm not standing with you presently, if I'm not physically present in your community, you need to continue to live a life worthy of the gospel. He's not necessarily calling out laziness, but he's trying to call them to this kingdom understanding, what it means to be a true kingdom citizen. Part of this now, though, is, is that we're so forgetful, right? I, I, maybe you're like me. When I, was, when I was in Bible college, we were like learning all these things about God's commands and going through the laws of the Old Testament, the 613 laws that the Jews needed to follow, and trying to understand how this all related to the character of God. And it's like, man, it would be so much easier to live this Christian life if, like, if we had an Apostle Paul, right? Like, if, if, if I was the Apostle Paul, a little freaky, but if, if we had a pastor who was an Apostle, who lived with Jesus, walked with Jesus, heard the language that Jesus used, and taught the things right from, right from Jesus' mouth, it, it, we feel like it'd be so much easier, right? Or what if Jesus was physically present? Like if Jesus was walking with us physically and, and taking us from place to place, and oh, we wouldn't, we wouldn't struggle with sin or disbelief in those circumstances. If Jesus was physically present with us, it'd be so much easier to believe. Well, it didn't work for anybody in the Bible. <laughs> but we're, we're so easy and quick to forget. So I started to think about this a little bit. I'm trying to understand this, this stand firm phrase a little bit more because in the West, we often think about our discipleship, which is the phrase we use for growing in faith and becoming more like Jesus. We tend to think of it purely in intellectual terms, that our job as Christians is to learn more information. And by learning more information, we will then love God better. By learning more about the Bible, we'll be able to obey the Bible's commands better. But uh, this is actually not the case. Because if we had Jesus literally telling us those things, standing beside us, we'd be exactly the same as the apostles were before the resurrection of Christ. We'd be forgetful. And Jesus actually told us that this was going to happen. He said it in, in John 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that Jesus goes away. Because if he doesn't go away, he can't send the helper. The helper, this word is the word paraclete. And it's the Holy Spirit. Paraclete means comforter. The one who comes alongside the advocate. Because if Jesus doesn't leave the earth and send us his spirit, then the unity of the faith that we experience together as Christians doesn't actually happen. And so when Jesus goes away, he says, but if I do go, you can be guaranteed of this. I will send the comforter to you. We, we think it'd be so much easier, don't we? Jesus was just, if he was standing here, well, he could. That would be really awesome if he did. If Jesus just came back and he was standing right here and he was the one preaching the message, we feel like we'd believe absolutely everything. So I started to dig into this a little bit more. And like I said, I, we, we tend to think about discipleship purely in terms of academic understanding or, or uh, learning more information. And I use a program that's called Logos Bible Software. Anybody familiar with Logos? Anybody? Yeah, a few of us are. It's an amazing tool. It, literally the, the world's 
Christian uh, literature at my fingertips. I use it for my studies for young adults. We're going through the, the book of Daniel right now um, and, and for studying for sermons like this. It's, an, it's a fantastic tool. So I wanted to get a little bit more information. This stand firm, if we only think about purely in terms of academic learnings and gaining more information, if that was the point, it's actually easier to stand firm now than any time else in history. Way easier. Here's the reason why. I went onto the, the website, and I was onto the Logos website, and I started to think, I'd like to know how many commentaries there are written on certain books. So we have a Bible of 66 books, written over the course of 1,500 years by 40-plus authors in three different languages. And, and some of these, these books, these little letters, are like a couple pages long. But the amount of content that's contained in them, as God has revealed it, is pretty insane. So I, I studied with the book of John. Gospel of John, it's when, if somebody's a skeptic or new to faith, we're like, this is the book you got to read. Because John lays it out. I wrote all these things down so that you'll believe that Jesus is the Christ. So... Commentaries. A commentary is a book that comments on the Bible, helps us understand it. There are... No, sorry, that's short. And so is that. 1,537 commentaries written on the Gospel of John. We don't have an information problem. We don't. On the tiny little book of Philippians, this wonderful little book, there are 251 English commentaries written. It's, it's three and a half pages long in your Bible. This would fill an entire library just with commentaries. No, we, we don't have an information problem. We have a fellowship problem. Discipleship is not primarily an information gathering experience. It's a change of heart affections. It's a change of desires. It's a shift in everything that we think and do. This standing firm in the gospel of Christ only comes from understanding, contending for, standing inside of the reality of the gospel that Jesus is the one who saves. That's it. We don't have a data gathering issue. We have a followership issue. We don't have a lack of information. We have a lack of transformation. And so what Paul says is stand firm. This stand firm word, sorry, I moved that over a little bit, is steko. It means to hold fast. We don't really use that terminology anymore, but at weddings, we, uh, a bunch of our staff were at a wedding yesterday for a couple in our church, and uh, Pastor Neil used the word that uh, the husband will leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to hold fast to Jesus. And in our Western culture, we are taught from a young age to be people of independence, looking for ways to elevate self. But what we actually need to do is we need to hold fast to Jesus. We need to stand firm. And then Paul says, in one spirit. This one spirit word is the word henny. It means a single unit. It's actually a military term. And so we're supposed to stand firm together as if we were one. And so here's the point. The gospel must shape our community. It has to. Standing firm in the gospel of Jesus that he's the one who saves us. No amount of information gathering is going to make us good enough for God to say, oh yeah, no, all that other stuff is not a problem. No, Jesus pays for that. And then the, the ask, the command out of the New Testament is that Christians go and do likewise, love one another, do the one another's of the New Testament. There are 60 positive commands for go and do one another. 
love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, be, be with one another, all these kinds of things. 60 positive ones in the New Testament. But Paul says all of these things you ought to do together, you need to see them as if you were doing it as one person. Then he says contending for the faith. This is an issue of wrestling, of, of holding firm to it, of not allowing it to be released, of having a firm grasp, but to do again as one man. So gospel S1 is that we must stand firm, but we have to do this together. Have to. Every time I preach, I say the same three things pretty much. The gospel of Jesus, get in a life group, and we need him more than we understand. Get, we have to be connected to one another. We have to. It's actually essential for growth. That's what Paul has just said. Live a life as citizens of a new kingdom, standing firm as one person rooted together. And he uses some of that military language, and here's the reason why. A lot of times in ancient battles, what would happen is you'd have the, uh, you'd have the pikemen, so the people with like the long spears up front. And then they'd have these gigantic, almost body-sized shields. You've probably seen this in like some ancient movies and stuff, right? They got this like gigantic six-foot shield. And the six-foot shield, generally speaking, had like a little curve in it. And that little curve was there so you could protect yourself and the person beside you, but still get your weapon out. That's the way that this works. So you, you would hold your shield, you would stand firm, you'd be rooted, you'd hold fast, but you had to do it together. Because if your buddy beside you let his shield down, you're not protected. We need one another in order to do this standing firm thing. All right, let's move on. Second one. Gospel S number two. Saved by God in opposition. Saved by God in opposition. All right, let's continue on. We got Philippians 1.28. And so Paul says, without being frightened, which is a really interesting word, we're going to talk about that, in any way by those who oppose you, because this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed. Their opposition is the sign. But their opposition is also the sign that you will be saved and that you will be saved by God. So Paul tells the Philippians to, to do this, contend for the faith, stand firm, be rooted, be one person in the gospel without being frightened. Now this word frightened, we often think about it in terms of fear. But that's a bad translation. It's actually the word intimidation. So without being intimidated, and the, here's the difference. Fear comes from inside. Fear is something that there's a situation going on I don't believe that God can handle, or I don't believe that I can withstand, or I don't believe that there's, there's something in me that says I cannot handle this situation. Intimidation is a little bit different. That's an outside force coming at you and saying you can't. See the difference? Fear is internal, and intimidation is from outside. And so this intimidation, Paul says, don't be intimidated in any way by those who oppose you. This word oppose is the word adversary, which is the Bible's favorite word for the devil. So don't be intimidated because people are going to come against the message of the gospel. Stand firm, be rooted, be of one spirit. And don't be intimidated by those who are against it because they, they oppose you. They're, they're your adversary. They're trying to be against you. They hate the message of freedom in the gospel. They hate the message of love and grace. The, the systems of the world don't believe in what Jesus has come to give them. And this is the sign. Their disregard of the gospel is the sign of, of their own destruction. 
but it's also the sign that those who stand firm and are rooted in the gospel will be saved. So when, when opposition comes, we need to understand that God is the one who is doing the saving. It's God who does it. It's the power of God to salvation. That's what the gospel is, right? That's what we talk about. See, perseverance and the faith of opposition brings forward to the mind of those doing the persecuting that they're actually at odds with God, whether they can cognitively understand that or not. This is exactly what has happened throughout all of church history. Jesus actually told his disciples, they're going to hate you. They're going to hate you. But what if we're really loving? I was really loving. They're going to hate you. But, but, what, but, what, if, but what, if we, what if we really stand firm in the, in, in the truth of the gospel? They're going to hate you. Okay, okay but what if, what if we just always keep to, the, we stick to the truths, we're really solid, and, 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 we, and we major on those major things, and we, and we, we, we do all the things that Jesus said you say we're going to do, and he goes, yeah, they're going to hate you. And then what happens in a culture like ours is that churches that bow the knee to that pressure start looking like the world and not like the church. Hard language, right? We see it all over the place. It's everywhere. Well, well, this, this shouldn't really be a gospel issue because we've, we've evolved. We've become smarter. No, no, we've bent the knee. We've allowed for the adversary to intimidate us into a position where we think that we can't preach the truth of the gospel because it's going to be uncomfortable. Let me, let me say this, everybody. Hear me very, very clearly. It is not going to get more comfortable in the West to be a Christian. It's not. People think, oh, but, but it used to be so much easier. Yes, it used to be. Praise God for those seasons. And praise God for the faithfulness of those years to raise up godly men and women to say to this generation, God was faithful then, he can be faithful now. It's not going to get easier. Remember what Paul said in the passage just before this one? We talked about it last week. Stand firm in the gospel, okay? Whatever happens, whether I come to you or whether I don't, even if I'm not watching you, if I'm not physically present, be a kingdom citizen. Because to live is Christ. To preach Christ, to make him known, to exalt him, to make him look glorious, to put him on the shelf of appeal. To die? It's our gain. Now, I'm not trying to trivialize this. I'm not trying to suggest that this is easy or that this is simple or this is going to be somehow like, oh, well, if, if, I, if I just preach Jesus all the time, it's always going to go well for me. No, no, no. You're saved by a God who knows that it's going to be hard. Don't be frightened. Don't be intimidated. Don't hold back. That adversary, even if they're from the world, they want to silence the message of the gospel. And our brothers and sisters across the world meet in private and in silence and in complete seclusion so that they can continue to preach the gospel. This whole thing is an aberration to the world of Christianity. It is. We have a freedom to do this. It's a wonderful, wonderful gift. But we can't just say, oh, I can't go to church right now. I'm so persecuted. We don't have any idea of what that means. This opposition is what Paul is talking about. When somebody opposes the message of the gospel, the reality is that is the sign to you as a Christian that you are in the faith. But our Western minds think about it so completely different than that. But let me be very, very clear. 
as Christians, we're not against people. We're not. Or we shouldn't be. We are against evil in the world. We're against oppressive powers in the world. We're against difficulty that that marginalizes people. We're against injustice. We're not against people. But for too long, Christians have been known for what they're against and not what they're for. Here's how Paul writes it somewhere else. In Ephesians 6, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It's against rulers and against authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. One enemy, just one. The devil likes to set up his tiny little pseudo kingdoms on earth and Jesus goes, that's cute. That's not gonna last. Remember when we went through the Revelation series? We're like, Jesus wins. It's not hearsay, it's not conjecture. We actually believe that. The devil's just trying to get in the way. And Jesus is in heaven, weeping over the difficulty of his people, but also laughing in the face of the devil. Going, you, you don't get to win. What are you doing? This is, this is foolish. But what Jesus is also saying to his people is, don't, don't be against people. Jesus wasn't against broken people. He didn't condemn broken people. He welcomed broken people. And then when they were accepted by him, he said, now go and don't sin anymore. John 8, beautiful passage. Jesus writing in the sand. People bring a a woman caught in prostitution to him, caught in adultery to him. And and they go, teacher, what should we do? The law says stoner. What should we do? He goes, okay, you without sin, throw the first one. And then he makes an amazing statement. After everybody starts to leave and they leave this woman who's been in this terrible situation, he looks up at her and he goes, where are your condemners? Where are your adversaries, if you want to use that word? Where are those who persecute you? And she goes, Lord, there are none. And he says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. The world thinks of Christians in the West as overly religious, old-fashioned people who haven't caught up with the times. Who only believe in following rules and being religious and who condemn others who aren't part of their religion for not following those same rules. This is something we need to get clarity on. A gospel-centered citizen, a gospel or kingdom Christian does not expect non-Christians to act like Christians. Does that make sense? If I was a dog, you'd expect me to act like a dog. I'm not a dog. Don't expect me to act like one. But we propagate this thing. It's like we, of people, they need to get their lives together before they come to Jesus. They've got to figure out their difficulties and, and clean themselves up before they come to Jesus. There's, there's issues in their lives that, well, they can't, they can't be present in the church because that, that disrupts things. It makes it uncomfortable. Jesus is uncomfortable. And he invites those people in. Christianity is not about church-going moral living. It's about a dead Savior risen to life to give the world new life. No, we are not the ones who should be living lives of opposition against people who are not spiritually alive. We need to offer them life in Christ because of his finished work. 
we need to make a shift. And it's, it's, it, it, we do this as a church so well. How many, I wasn't in the beginning of the service. How many of you were here yesterday? Candidate. You're serving yesterday. Thank you so much for doing that. You know 5,000 people showed up? That's crazy. Look what God does when there's people are like, okay, Jesus, you want us to do this thing? And Pastor Kevin and Michaela have led, led us so well over the last number of months setting up for this thing. But people who came to Canada, they need to feel like they, they are welcomed and that they can belong oftentimes long before they believe. Long before they believe. That doesn't mean that we, we shirk our responsibilities to preach the truth. Doesn't mean that we abandon the importance of standing firm and rooted in the gospel in favor of pop psychology or Western societal thinking. No, we don't do that. But we welcome people and invite them to belong. Oftentimes long before they believe. See, we are saved by God even in spite of opposition. But we're also saved by God in opposition because we are opposing him before we bow the knee to Christ. All right, gospel S number three. This is probably the most controversial and the most difficult one to dig through. Suffer for Christ and do it willingly. Suffer for Christ and do it willingly. This is Philippians 1, 29. Paul writes, for it has been granted to you, it's a very interesting word we're going to talk about, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here I am still having. Remember, where's Paul? Prison. Is he suffering? Yeah. Does he think it's weird? No. To our Western concept, that makes complete and utter nonsense, right? Like, we love good stuff. We do. If you had the choice between really terrible burger from some fast food joint or a five-star restaurant, what are you going to choose? We'll lean over this side. If you got a lemon or a beater or you got a Ferrari, what are you going to choose? Ferrari. It makes sense. So what Paul is actually suggesting here to these people is ridiculously crazy. The, the, Philipp, the Philippians were what a lot of historians kind of look at as like the pinnacle of, of what it meant to be Roman. They were not a true Roman powerhouse city like Ephesus or Rome were, but very, very influential. Philippi was, was, a, was a major city and they loved being Greco-Roman. They loved what it was to be a Roman citizen. They, they loved that being a Roman meant that they were the pinnacle people of the world. They loved that being a Roman meant that they were financially secure and that they had laws to protect them. As a Roman citizen, they enjoyed the roads that would travel around to all these different areas. Being a Roman was, was a huge deal. But to suggest to a Roman who's at the pinnacle of society, who's at the top of the food chain, as it were, that they would suffer is ridiculous. No, we, we make other people suffer and do what we want them to do. That's what it means to be a Roman. Because that's how all their Caesars operated. And so what Paul is saying here is he says, it has been granted, which actually means graciously given. That seems counterintuitive. It's been graciously given to you on the behalf of Christ because of Jesus' finished work. Not only to believe, the Greek word is pistus, which means to trust in, to trust on, to put your faith under, but also to suffer for him. This is uncomfortable. This, this suffering word is actually really, really significant. Suffer, the word is 
Pasho, sorry, that's an S. Nadina, you caught that? I, I, I corrected it. There she is. I can't spell very well. Um, and it means to suffer pain or persecution. But it's really, really interesting. The Greek language shares a lot of root words that are the same. And the root word for suffering is this word. I'll change the color so it's easier to understand. Pasha. Guess what that word means? What does it sound like? Passion. It's passion. Suffering and passion are linked. It's, it's not a mistake. They're not just changing a letter here and going, oh, that's, that's interesting. No, the, the, the way that the language is set up is to help us understand that when you are passionate for something, you're willing to suffer for it. So it has been graciously given to you because you've been saved by Jesus to believe on him, to trust in him, put your faith underneath him, but also to have passion and be willing to suffer for his cause. It's a weird sort of double. Believe and suffer don't seem like they should go together in our Western context, right? Because if you believe in Jesus, your life should be good. It should be better. It should be easy. Because we've got the truth. We've, we've got God on our side. He, he's the one who fights for us, who's, who's our strong defender, who, who, who heals our issues and, and, and is alongside of us and encourages us. And oftentimes, that's the false gospel that gets preached out of the West. It's a damnable lie. Here's what gets preached from the West. It's called the prosperity gospel. We've talked about it before, but it's, it's important that we get a handle on it. Here's what it says. Are you sick? Come to Jesus, because he'll heal you every time. Are you poor? Come to Jesus, he'll give you wealth. Are you struggling? Come to Jesus, because he wants you to have your best life right now. Are you oppressed? Come to Jesus because your life will be better, easier, and, and you'll get all the things that you want. Have you been forgotten? Come to Jesus because he has an amazing plan for your life. Now, some of those things sound like they're true, right? We should invite people, come to Jesus because he will heal your spiritual brokenness. Coming to Jesus is no guarantee that he's going he's gonna to fix you physically. We should never propagate that. Because we don't know the mind of God. We don't know what's his good pleasure. Anybody had a disease that they've prayed, God, please heal me, and he hasn't? Let's, let's, be, let's be real about it. It's okay to be honest. I have. I struggle with a, an anxiety and depression disorder. Have for the last eight years. Do I want it to go away? You better believe I do. And that's minor compared to so much of what our people here struggle with. Here's the rub, though. If we even just look at the lives of the apostles, the amazing plan for their lives was that they would preach the gospel and ultimately be martyred for their faith. Did God forget them? You say, oh, thanks for doing your service, guys. I don't have a plan for you anymore. No. No, we never did that. Peter was crucified upside down, proclaiming the gospel. Paul was beheaded in Rome, proclaiming the gospel. Several of the other disciples, Andrew, Simon the Zealot, died by crucifixion in different places while preaching the gospel. Matthew was killed by soldiers in Ethiopia on a missionary journey to people that had never heard the gospel before. God's good plan for his life. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded in Jerusalem. John, his brother, was exiled to Patmos, an island of seclusion, to live out the days of his life by himself. 
was this plan for their lives bad? Or based on what we're learning here, should it have been somewhat expected? See, suffering and the Christian faith are linked. They are intertwined. Jesus told us that this was the case. In John 15, this is what Jesus says. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me beforehand. If you were of the world, listen to this, super, super important. If you, Christian, were of the world, the world would love you as its own because you don't speak against it. You have everything in common. There's no, there's no dissonance there. But, huge word, tiny little letters, huge word. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Because Jesus chooses you, the world hates you. When the world hates you, it's a sign of the fact that you're actually following Jesus. It doesn't make sense to our Western minds. Not convinced? Let's go to another place. Matthew 16, Jesus says this to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. Jesus is actually calling his disciples to more, something more significant than just death. He's calling them to death of their old way of living, death of their chosen sins, death of bad relationships, the death of commitment to the world systems, death to their trust in wealth and earthly goods, death to the beliefs that they are their own gods and masters. Instead, we're invited to join Christ and follow him and take up his life by willingly laying ours down. By joining in Jesus' life, we become part of his ministry of reconciliation to the world, to live in a way that brings life and love and hope and peace to humanity, that bucks up against the evil, wrong systems of the world and brings justice to the poor and the oppressed. To be an agent of love and grace in the world is what it means to die and follow Jesus. We've gotten this so wrong in our Western culture, thinking like my little physical ailment or my difficulty or my, my whatever is my cross to bear. Your cross to bear is to get up and die for Jesus every day. Suffering for the sake of Christ is the primary marker of service to the king in the world. Suffering should not be sought after. We're not masochists. But it also shouldn't be shied away from. Or thought of as an unexpected reality where God has abandoned us. Paul says this to his protege, Timothy. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He doesn't say some people who want to live a decent life will be sometimes bothered. You want to live a godly life in Christ, you will be persecuted. It's pretty clear. Paul says it this, uh, Peter says it this way, but rejoice that you participate in the passion of Christ and the suffering of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. When Jesus returns again, you can be overjoyed because you are marked by him because you suffer for him. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, which is more likely what we're going to experience in the West currently, you are hated by God and abandoned. No, 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 that's not what he says. What do he say? If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory, another term for the Holy Spirit, rests on you or lives in you. So it has been granted, graciously given to you on the behalf of Christ to believe and to suffer. 
it's really easy to say. It's really hard to live, right? It's really easy to say. But let me, let me encourage you with this. When you're going through suffering, if you don't let the church know, the church can't guard with you, can't put up their body shield beside you. Suffering means that we are opposed by those who hate God and his message. And because we are hated by that, we need to stand firm, rooted in the gospel. And we have to do that together. This, this body of people, this family of faith, it's not just some made-up thing that we do because we think it's fun to gather with people in a cool building on a hot day on a Sunday morning. It's because we need each other. I need you. The neighbor sitting beside you who's a brother and sister in the faith needs you to help them stand firm to be reminded that you are saved by God even in spite of the opposition. And most importantly, you need that brother or sister to come alongside of you when you're in suffering to encourage you that this is not God forgetting you. It's an evidence that he's working in your life. Let's pray together. Seek him. Ask him to help. Ask him to fix it because he can and sometimes he will. But if not, we remain open-handed saying, God, I trust you whether you heal me or not. Real easy to say. Essential that we have each other when we're in it. Let's pray together. King of heaven, you are glorious and we are small. So much of what you impressed on my heart in this passage feels so foreign to our Western understanding in our, our North American context that we would suffer for anything just kind of seems ridiculous to us. And, and I in no way want to trivialize the difficulty, the pain, the sorrow, the, the hurt and frustration that goes along with, with suffering for you. But would you remind us, King Jesus, that we are citizens of your kingdom that were bought by you, that we've been given the precious blood of the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Would you truly remind our hearts today, encourage us, God, with this truth that you do not leave or forsake your children. You are with us even in the difficulties that we may face. Lord Jesus, would you find us faithful faithful as kingdom citizens in this world, building us up, encouraging us in areas where we feel weak, and also helping us to live firmly, strongly as kingdom citizens in our world today, offering love and life and grace and hope. Jesus, I, Jesus, I pray for your sake, for your glory, and for our good. Amen.